I think we're moving beyond a world where you go to you know, website.com from a desktop and buy something. And we're moving more towards commerce being embedded in part of our, in our everyday lives. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Rewrite Tech, the Deconium Developer Podcast. My name is Geraldine DeBastian. And I am Brad Richards. And in today's episode, we welcome author, fellow podcaster, and current CPO of Commerce Tools, Kelly Gooch, to the show. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. You are a native to Wisconsin. You're cheese country. Are you, first and foremost, a (laughs) Green Bay Packers fan? First and foremost. Uh, you know, I think I was born without the sports gene. I, <laughs> you know, of all the things in life I care about, and there are a lot of things I care about, sports is just not one of them. And I can't get myself to care about sports no matter how hard I try. I'm fine. Which is really that. hard living in Packer country. I Packer country honest. is, you guys are crazy. All right. You guys are crazy with, with the Green Bay Packers fans. <laughs> so that's, I had to ask it. And I, I, the, the first thing I want to ask is what brought you, I know you're currently in Wisconsin, so, but what brought you to be working with Commerce Tools with especially a team based out of Berlin. So what brought you to Commerce Tools? <laughs> well, it's it's a weird story. So my very first job, I was in university first year looking for a summer job. And I had built websites in high school and it was was generally a pretty uh, able technically. And it turns out footlocker.com was based in Wausau, Wisconsin, where I'm from. Convenience. And they were <laughs> in the midst of the largest ATG implementation in the world. Which was, I mean, just talk about getting lucky. And then they brought me on. My original job was to convert Photoshop images to HTML. (sighs) And then I started doing JSPs. And the head architect of the project really liked me. He was just about to retire. And I was like 18 at the time. you know. So he kind of took it upon himself to mentor me. I ended up joining Foot Locker for a year, working full-time and studying full-time. And then my... Girlfriend, now wife, and I both moved to Chicago for 10 years, where I got established professionally, and we finished our educations, and, you know, just generally enjoyed the big city. But then um, we had a child, and we figured it was, we could have either moved to the Chicago suburbs, where we didn't know anyone, and I was traveling all the time anyway, or we could go back home, where... I mean, it's pretty nice here. It's, it, you know, it's certainly not downtown Chicago, but it's a perfectly right. pleasant place to raise a, raise kids, great schools. And with me traveling all the time, it's nice to be able to leave my family supported. So, you know, I like the way you finished this, that you sentence. Know. Leave my family supported. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can abandon them with, uh, yeah. with family support in place. <laughs> No, that's great. So, so now you've been the, you know, the CPO uh, at Commerce Tools. So how did that kind of transition happen? So maybe you can tell us about your, your work at Commerce Tools and for the people who don't know, what is Commerce Tools? Sure. So uh, let's, let's go back a little bit. I had been with Oracle for five years as a product manager mm. in their cloud application foundation group. And I, my last year at Oracle, I was responsible for microservices. And I really enjoyed the intersection of commerce, which I got from ATG, cloud, which I got from Oracle. And and don't laugh. I mean, it, it's not as ridiculous as it sounds today. But back then, <laughs> Oracle was actually a, a reasonable pioneer in cloud. Um, and then microservices. A lot of yes, you're going to confuse them. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I really like that intersection of, of Commerce Cloud and microservices. And the CEO and founder of Commerce Tools has re- had read my book, uh, E-Commerce mm. in the Cloud, which I wrote in 2013. And I really wanted to get back into that space. And I ended up uh, meeting up with the CEO. We had coffee, which turned into dinner, which turned into drinks and more drinks and Been there more before. drinks. And we... Uh, you know, ended up really uh, seeing eye to eye on a lot of things. So I've been with the company about four and a half years, mm. give or take, coming up on four and a half years. Um, and at the time, we were a small German-based commerce platform. Mm-hmm. Great technical foundation. The company launched its product in 2013. And it, it had been selling reasonably well in, in the German market, mm-hmm. uh, Dach uh, specifically. Um, but it hadn't really broken out. And I was part of a group of hires. Uh, Dirk, the founder and CEO, hired myself. He hired a head of sales from Innershop and from IBM. He hired a head of marketing from Fujitsu. He basically hired a tier below him mm. with enterprise background to take this product globally. Mm. So we were about a 75-person company then. We're over 260 now. Wow. Uh, we raised $145 million last year from Insight Partners. And we hit Gartner Leaders Quadrant. Uh, we hit Forrester Leaders. And we've got a, a bunch of big brand name customers and really growing and scaling the company right now. That's fantastic. And you mentioned the you mentioned Gartner's. And I want to ask you, this is something that, that came up, is what is uh, the Gartner's magic quadrant for digital commerce? <laughs> you guys are listed as a visionary here. It's something we came across. We got to know more. What is What is this? Well, we're actually a leader now. So last year we were visionary. Oh. So we're actually the fastest commerce platform to have ever gone to the leaders quadrant. Wow. A leader is, so it's it's a quadrant, right? It's four and it, it's like a product life cycle basically. But by the time the product hits leader, that's a, that's a mark that your product has achieved product market fit, that mm. it's a safe choice for big companies, that you have lots of public references and they do a very thorough audit of your product. They do an audit of your finances. Basically, if you're a big company, it's a safe bet for you to choose. And it's a validation. It's a hallmark. It's saying, we have vetted as Gartner or Forrester, we have vetted mm. this company and you know they're widely used and they're a safe bet. So we actually get a lot of RFPs that come across and they will literally just go to the three vendors in the leader section. Right. And click. And submit the RFP (laughs) only to those three vendors. And now we're part of that club and it makes a big difference. Yeah. And especially for commerce tools, a lot of the stuff, which I'm assuming, which you mentioned, what commerce tools kind of does is you guys focus a lot on large customers with regards to your products. So obviously the larger the organizations you work with, the longer implementation, the more trust you need. Maybe you can kind of walk us through how commerce tools differentiates themselves amongst other products in the market. Well, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a whole crop of these commerce platforms that got started. And Mm. that was kind of the first wave. So think of ATG, which turned into Oracle Commerce after the acquisition, IBM WebSphere Commerce, Innershop, which became Demandware, which became Salesforce Commerce Cloud, Hybris, which became SAP Commerce. Mm -hmm. So all of these platforms shared the same basic characteristics. They were platforms with a very opinionated way of doing things. (laughs) They were monolithic in nature. You had to host them or you had to pay the vendor to host them. Right. Right. You, it wasn't a service. 
And they were very opinionated, right? If if you were working with Salesforce, you have to be a Salesforce developer with years of experience and know exactly how to, right? And and they're just very different styles of applications. And we at Commerce Tools are a very different approach. So a, a talk I give a lot is titled, if Google, Microsoft, or Amazon built a commerce platform, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. And it will look like what we've built. So we have a library of about 300 individually consumable APIs for commerce. So you have an API for a shopping cart, one for inventory, one for pricing. And it's kind of funny, I I, um, was interviewing product managers for a long time. And one of the questions that I would ask our product manager candidates is, explain the difference between single and multi-tenancy. And it was funny because I had otherwise really good candidates completely not answer that question. They right. had no idea what I was talking about. And it struck me, anybody under the age of like 29 mm-hmm. has never dealt with single tenancy. They literally don't know what that concept is. They don't know the concept of like downloading a big ear file and deploying it to an application server and connecting it to a database and running it on a server. Mm-hmm. Like that whole model, they just literally don't know what that means. They've grown up in a solely multi-tenant world. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are for commerce. We're commerce tools. So removing removing the opinionated aspect of it and being a bit more flexible, let's say. And in that, yeah. actually, Deconium and commerce tools actually work together on a, on a few projects. Maybe you can kind of, if you know the background of how this kind of partnership arose, because we are one of the many companies that work with you. I know one of the projects is Volkswagen, yes. where we power the function-on-demand feature for Audi vehicles. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a new e-tron, for example, it actually comes manufactured from Volkswagen, from Audi, with a lot of features enabled, but they're enabled through software. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. You know, I, in, in Wisconsin, if I'm buying a new car, I'm going to buy one with heated seats because in the winter, it gets yep. really cold here. Yep. I need heated seats. Now, if I lived in Florida and I'm leasing a car, buying one, I'm not going to get heated seats. No. Now, the cost to Audi to add that feature is a few dollars, right? It's not a huge fee. It's not very much. And it actually costs them money because there's a lot of varying variance in the manufacturing process. So they want to turn their business into more of a subscription model where I, as a customer in Florida, could buy the car without heated seats. But if I sell that car to someone in Wisconsin, you know, me, mm. I'm going to want that feature. And for five bucks a month in the winter... I might want to enable it, or for five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, I might want to just buy that feature straight up, mm-hmm. right? As I would from the factory. So it's a great idea from from their standpoint, and it's just an example of like you physically couldn't have chosen another commerce platform for that. Like you needed a multi-tenant SaaS API based platform that you can use a la carte mm-hmm. for that. So we're really expanding the market for commerce together here, and you're doing that as you as commerce tools, but if I understand correctly, you're also part of other alliances that are trying to sort of propel that vision for future e-commerce. And one of those is the Mach Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we got together with EPAM and ContentStack, Ampliance, and Voltec. I'm probably missing one. <laughs> Five of us. <laughs> We got together and and formed this alliance. It's actually registered as a business league. It's almost like a lobbying organization. Because the problem that we all face is when we go to market, especially on the ISV side, on the vendor side, we're pitching to a customer and we say, we have APIs. 
and somebody from Hybris or from Oracle says, well, we have APIs too. And we say, no, you don't. Your APIs are terrible, you know, objectively, <laughs> right? <How dare> you? <laughs> you know, and then we say, you know, we're multi-tenant. And they say, well, we're multi-tenant too. And I, you know, and we can say objectively that is false. You are not multi-tenant. That is complete marketing gibberish. Do not lie. But by the time you're going back and forth in front of a customer who's a VP of e-commerce who does, who has, they don't know better, right? Mm-hmm. They just read the marketing. And look, it's not their job to know the intricacies and the ins and outs of commerce platforms. Mm-hmm. But what we've done through the Mock Alliance, it stands for microservices, APIs, cloud-native, multi-tenant SaaS, and headless. So if you conform to those four principles, and we have a very, very detailed technical test, and you pay a membership fee, you can join this alliance and therefore become a Mock-certified vendor. And the purpose of that is to say, we are certified. We co-founded this alliance, and now there are 21 other members in the alliance. So we have content full. We have big commerce. Fastly is part of it. So it's a it's a pretty broad consortium of vendors who conform to these mock principles. We can say we in the alliance have passed this test. We conform to these principles, and now when we go in front of a customer, and the customer is saying, "Well, you know, Salesforce told us this, or Adobe told us that," we can now say. Look, are they part of the mock alliance? Yes or no, right? Why are they not part of that alliance, right? And, yeah. and it kind of puts a clear divider between us and them. Yeah, you kind of collected all the the innovative kids on your <laughs> block <laughs> and gave yourself a little bit more lobby power that way maybe, but also, of course, it's a good idea to be able to support each other and trying to win over those clients who have not heard the call yet. <laughs> Do you feel like the mode is kind of changing now during the corona pandemic? I read on the MAH website this idea that acting slowly is no longer an option. Do you think that clients are feeling that now? I mean, in Germany here, I feel we live in this situation where we can really feel the pain points of where e-commerce hasn't really worked out and is not maybe up to scratch yet these days. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you can see it with, like when the pandemic started in you know mid-March, there were a bunch of retailers that got contactless curbside pickup launched within days. Mm. You know, Best Buy, for example, Best Buy had that release the next week. Literally the next week, they mm. were live with it nationwide. And that's because they have a mock-based platform, right? They use all of those principles internally, uh, which is amazing. And there are retailers today who still don't have that functionality, right? And it's because in many cases, they have quarterly releases to production. I've seen retailers that deploy to production once a year. And it's a concerted, everyone in the company comes together and they release their commerce platform, they release their CDP, they release their OMS, their WMS, either CRM system. I mean, it's literally every single thing in the entire company is released one day because they're, they have so many interdependencies and it's so slow and so awful that they can't. And when you're releasing to production once a quarter or, you know, heaven forbid, once a year, that puts you at an extremely competitive disadvantage relative to your peers. Yeah. I mean, often when we talk about e-commerce in Germany, or at least also recently looking at the news, there's just this huge focus on the 
yeah, basically the dominance of Amazon and the fact that they're providing the platform as well as becoming the shops whenever they see a product is popular and trying to find out through their statistics what they should be producing next as well. So in that sort of twofold role, which is drawing the attention of regulators, but also we've really just on a consumer level felt our extreme dependence on this one platform. Is that something you're trying to create a more level playing field for through commerce tools? Yeah, our, our whole product vision is to democratize commerce technology. So we've built an Amazon-style platform internally, and then we offer that as a multi-tenant service to our customers. And a lot of our customers are choosing between building it from scratch or buying us as a foundation. And I'll, I'll give you an example, like John Lewis, right? They chose us, uh, and they were debating between building it or buying it. Another one was AT&T.com. And there they actually tried to build it and they had some challenges and then they decided to buy. And I think that's that's the future of, of, of commerce platforms is we're almost becoming, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but commerce is almost becoming commoditized. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of the functionality is known. It's not like we're developing some crazy new algorithms and it had never been built before. We know what commerce looks like. We know what the data model looks like. We know 98% of the features that we need to build. It's a well-known surface area. It's a mature market. And what inevitably happens is commoditization. And again, that's not a bad thing. Like, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in CDNs or load balancing or DNS or, you know, take your pick of the plumbing that, that we use today for technology. There's tons of money in that. But we're moving past a world where, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example with with load balancers. Um, you know, now all the clouds have load balancers built in. It's really easy and it's really affordable and everybody uses them and they have great features. Before you used to have to buy these standalone boxes that were ridiculously expensive and proprietary and you needed engineers from, you know, F5 or whatever it was to come. Mm-hmm. And I think we're hitting the same thing with commerce where we know the domain it's mature. Everyone now needs commerce, right? Even just be way beyond the traditional retailers, everyone needs it. And it's becoming something that is, that's a commodity. And I think we're well positioned to lead that. Mm. So where's your, you've already given us a little bit of a glimpse where you think should things should be heading, but maybe like looking at also some of the current buzzwords going around, like social commerce or touches commerce or also some of the effects we're feeling of corona like how to create certain experiences online like where are your visions for for the yeah for the next stage of e-commerce i think we're moving beyond a world where you go to you know website.com from a desktop and buy something and we're moving more towards commerce being embedded in part of our in our everyday lives so that's mobile devices, it's kiosks, it's clienteling in stores. Uh, we actually have a lot of customers who are using us as the point of sale system, right? And we're seeing more of that. Social commerce is going to get bigger. And then I think if we look out a few years from now, augmented reality is going to be the big thing for commerce. And nobody's really cracked the whole AR user experience yet, but I think Apple is getting there. And I know Google is working on some things, Google Glass, you know, version two. And I think we're going to get to a point where you could have glasses on and look at somebody's handbag and it'll show a virtual tag where you could then buy that same handbag. Mm. 
And I think, you know, again, this might be five years out, but that's the type of thing that necessitates a commerce platform like Commerce Tools, where it's all API-based. And I think that's really exciting, you know, and their commerce is really going to be embedded in our everyday world. You know, and I think that's that's fantastic. That, mm-hmm. that has huge implications. And then I think from a tech standpoint, we're seeing two big trends, um, you know, besides microservices and APIs and SaaS and all that stuff. We're seeing GraphQL really, really take off. And earlier this year, I wrote a book on GraphQL and commerce. And we're seeing probably 75 plus percent of our big customers use GraphQL now. So we're seeing it everywhere, which is exciting. And then we're also seeing a lot of Jamstack. We're starting to see that. That's maybe 15, 20% of our customers are doing Jamstack. But Mm. I think things are really moving quickly in both the where you consume commerce from a consumer standpoint, and then also how as a platform or how you render that experience through GraphQL to Jamstack or, you know, whatever that delivery mechanism is technically. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole topic of, I think we could talk about contextual commerce for a whole other hour because I think that it's a, a lot of uh, interesting topics around, around privacy, around like the speed of it, all these kinds of different things that kind of make it interesting. But you mentioned before that you, that you, you have written some books. So you've written four books, actually. So you're not just a one-time author, you're a four-time author. So e-commerce in the cloud, microservices for modern commerce, APIs for modern commerce, and, and GraphQL for modern commerce. All of these have different approaches and angles to commerce in today's world and also for the future world. What was your approach with each of these books and, and what kind of started you down this, uh, being a published authors uh, in this field? What kind of like drove you to kind of uh, do this? Um, the first one I wrote in 2013, I'd always wanted to write, especially for O'Reilly, I wanted an mm. animal book. Always. And I was kind of bored at Oracle, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, had a couple months there where, you know, we had released a product and hadn't really picked up another one yet. And, thought, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it. Right. Now, is the, now is a great time. And my daughter was, my wife was, I don't know, three months pregnant, something like that. And I mm. figured, you know what, with kids, it's not going to work. So I might as well just do it, mm. get it done with. So I did the first one and I, I really enjoyed it. And then, you know, the, the last three, we at Commerce Tools are pioneering these things right? Whether it's uh, API-based commerce. Mm. And I still remember meeting with a Forrester analyst back in 2016. And the analyst basically politely called it stupid to her face. Very nice. <laughs> and he was such a jerk about it. And he said, nobody will ever be doing API commerce. That's ridiculous. He called it um, something we were being obtuse about it. Um, oh, It really mean about it, you know? Yeah. And now, of course, we're you know, the leader in, in this, right? We're Who's up to now, man, <laughs> yeah. on your face, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these books have really helped make the category mm. because that's what we're doing is we're making a category and educating people. And each of these three attack it from a slightly different perspective, right? Yeah. So there's APIs, and then there's microservices behind the APIs, and then there's GraphQL, which is an aggregation layer above the APIs. Mm-hmm. So they're all very complementary. And... I wrote these to be approachable so that the first chapter could be easily read by a business person, mm. somebody, maybe an executive, and really get a good overview of what the thing is, why it's important, and roughly how it works. Yeah, And it's really helped us as, at Commerce Tools of popularizing these concepts. I mean, we literally invented headless commerce, and it's nice to be able to have the 
thought leadership, have the collateral, have the books to match that. You know, that's really cool. And I like that approach because I've, I've worked with some massive art organizations and we've used many of those competitors you mentioned, and you just feel handcuffed sometimes. And you just get this bill for like 250,000 euros for implementation of a travel software that you have to hire a specific consultant to come in and pay this person 150 euros an hour for eight months and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's, it's a (laughs) real, it's a real problem. And uh, when I heard these numbers in some of these large organizations, they're like, Oh, it's at least 2 million to implement. I'm like, excuse me, sir. And madam, what do you mean by (laughs) just to implement? So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a really cool approach that commerce tool is taking to democratize commerce. That is a mouthful. But on top of that, so you've written all these books and all these different things, but you've also written a very fascinating thing that we found was the 75 tips and tricks or that you learned earlier in your career that you wish you knew earlier. Did I get that right roughly? <laughs> Something like that. Something yeah. like that. So so Geraldine and I went through all 75 and we picked out Uh-oh. some. <laughs> we learned some. A pr- couple that we felt were things that we wanted to discuss with you. Yeah, <laughs> but we either because we, we had different experiences or were super curious to find out how you learned that lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> And I should preface this by saying I I am not a natural people person. I like people. I'm fascinated by them. Yes. But I have the mind of an engineer. I like computers. Computers are very, you know, the, for any given input, the output is always the same. They're deterministic. Humans are infinitely complicated. So I'm <laughs> a student of the human condition and always learning, And which is why I think some of those might have been obvious to people who are more people people. Right. But I'm not a people person. So I'm having to learn. <laughs> For the people listening, that is the opening line he has to these 75 tips is that he is not a people person. And I laughed out loud when I read that right at the beginning of it. <laughs> so the first one I want to read is, is number six, which was uh, don't try to be top 1% in the field. Try to be top 10% in two overlapping, but not terribly related fields. Be a good lawyer who can program, etc. What made you kind of approach that? So there's kind of this different types of mentalities and it kind of felt like you're coming from like a product manager kind of standpoint because it, that that lacking, not not lacking, but more of a generalist, but expert in the generalist role and not a hyper expert. So what was kind of your approach with, the, with this tip? Well, I mean, if you look at our economy, there's still very large swaths of it that are not at all digitized. Yeah. And, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. In high school, I worked for a funeral home and I Mm. built their website and I wrote obituaries. Very cool. I worked for a graveyard. Look at us. Did you? I did. I did. (laughs) I was like 14. And, you know, even to this day, the funeral industry does not have any reasonable software for managing the entire life cycle. It's all done in paper charts still to this day. So there's money to be made if someone's a really good funeral director to build really nice SaaS software for managing that. It's weird, but that's an area that's totally not touched by technology. The legal field, people still fax. I mean, reams of paper constantly everywhere all the time. Yep. Right? That's a perfect example of where you could apply technology to solve real problems. And I think if you look at, you know, there there are computer scientists who do things like distributed consensus protocol work. And they're your only career choices to go work for Google or Facebook yeah, and be one of five engineers in the world who look at this problem and you deal with math all day, which 
I mean, for some people, maybe that's what they want, right? They're choosing between that and academia. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go out and have a real impact on the world, you know, y- you should be applying it to something besides theory, just straight computer science. So, yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, when I've, why I have family members and other things, and I, I counsel them against from getting a straight degree in computer science and instead getting a degree in environmental sciences or, you know, take your pick of something Hmm. And then computer science is a minor that you can apply. Because, I mean, computer science isn't that hard, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the digitization of these things is not that difficult either. But you know what? Like number six is definitely one of my favorite ones. And I think it's it's so true also from a completely non-tech perspective. I think this is a little bit of a magic formula that you put up for building an interesting and lasting career and at the same time it's something that's really still kind of alien in germany where we still believe in these very linear paths through everything so Mm -hmm. yeah i think this sort of creative mix of different skill sets also not to become boring for yourself (laughs) Mm -hmm. but to be able just to come up with new things like see new things in that mix is so important so i want to jump to number 10 which i found to be honest a little bit irritating only in the (laughs) sense that i i completely get it from a sort of hacker point of view number 10 is Asking permission to do something is seeking denial. But it kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way from the sort of Facebook fail fast and break things approach, which we've also seen to be super harmful. So I was kind of wondering from, I'm guessing you're coming at this from the kind of hackery perspective of just trying and testing and doing things. But what kind of caught me, and here's where I wanted to find out, how did you how did you learn this lesson, Kelly? Is if number ten is asking to do uh, to do something is seeking denial, but number forty one is never surprise your boss. How does that go hand in hand? <laughs> Don't surprise your boss. I think that's overrules number ten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, look, generally speaking, and I think this is more a big company. Um, you know, if if you want to do a webinar, for example. Right. The very last thing you want to do is go talk to the corporate marketing team and ask them if you can have permission to do a webinar, because that goes into a a multi-step long process of them eventually saying no to you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's Mm -hmm. dramatically easier just to do it. And, you know, if you know you're not going to get in too much trouble for it and it's advancing the cause of the company and the product and you're doing a good job, I tend towards doing it. And if somebody has a problem with it, they can tell me after the fact and I won't do it again. You know, another thing is like, you know, many people's bosses don't want permission to be asked for permission to do everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I like people who work for me who just do it, you know, like my head of product, Andrea, she's fantastic. Things just get done. She doesn't ask me for permission constantly because we have a very good working and personal relationship. She knows me enough to know what I need to grant permission for and whatnot, and you know, if it's borderline, she'll just do it. And I don't ever have a problem with it, you know? And I, I think things just get faster, get done faster if you just have an attitude of, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And, you know, and look, I agree, you know, the whole Mark Zuckerberg thing and breaking the internet and breaking democracy, like, you know, that example of fail fast is probably not the best fail fast approach. <laughs> I agree with you on that, but that is dramatically different than using a corporate credit card to buy some printer paper rather than going through procurement. 
Absolutely. I absolutely agree. If you want, you can tell us quickly what on earth though did you surprise? Which boss who fired and did they fire you for the surprise? <laughs> no, it, it wasn't anything big. But you know, this was more Oracle. And there it was kind of difficult because the executive vice president, later the president of, of Oracle, Thomas Curry, and he really drove a lot of the decision making across mm. product. So what would happen is he would email me and ask me for an update on a product or ask me for my plans or ask me to make some decision on something. And then I would make the decision and then he would go you know, to my boss and my boss would be in a meeting and not have any idea what I committed to. Yeah. So what I always do, you know, whenever you're meeting with someone above your boss, right, whether it's a board member at Commerce Tools or whatever that happens to be, you know, just document it and send it, send it an email to your boss. And that way, if they're ever asked about the decision or asked about the conversation, they know because you've briefed them on it. And it's happened to me before where I've had somebody under me surprise me with something which again, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, if if I'm sitting in front of my boss, and somebody below me has said something to my boss, and I don't know about it, it makes me look stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You don't yeah. want that. In, in case any of my team are listening, I want to be surprised <laughs> if it's in the category of getting things done, as Kelly was describing <laughs> earlier, or if it's about Christmas. Yes. <laughs> Always welcome. Um, another one I really, really loved, and I totally... I want to live up to that as a boss is your Todd Jackson quote on a manager's top responsibility being to shield the bullshit that happens at work from the people that work for you to be the shit umbrella, not the shit funnel. I think that's definitely (laughs) a really good piece of boss advice there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. Look, your job is to make your employees productive and happy and successful. And and I think the ultimate success at, at work is if you can step back and everything just works, mm. yeah. right? And yeah. if you've built a culture where, you know, your employees aren't bothered all the time with stupid things and review meetings and decision boards and committees and, 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 you cut through that, shield your team, you know, it, everybody's a lot more productive. It's a much more trusting environment and things get done faster and better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially from a product perspective, I always uh, told my product managers on my team that, if things aren't burning up, you're doing. If, if people realize that the product manager is not around, that means you're doing a good job as a product manager. Yeah. <laughs> that everything is running and you're bored, you're doing a great job as a product manager because your team is enabled. You're doing a good job. You should be bored. Okay, you should be bored and the, everything else. <laughs> the last one of of the seventy five that we chose. This one popped me. This one made me laugh real hard. There, there were twenty nine. There are three kinds of lies: lies, damn lies, and benchmarks. <laughs> and it's a really good one. And I also think it's also ironic in the same breath because you work in commerce and e-commerce and those kind of things where benchmarking is industry standard. So what is your take on kind of benchmarking with regards to it being lies or damn lies? This is explicitly out of my experience at Oracle because <laughs> they had you know databases and a cloud which was struggling and still very struggling so they would do lots and lots of benchmarks. And mm. it is always easy if you're doing a huge benchmark to cherry pick the one thing that you did better than your competitors. Put that in a gigantic bar chart and uh, put it on the back of The Economist. That's great. Uh, it is fantastic <laughs> if you're trying to do marketing. And it works just fine if you're trying to confuse a CIO or a VP. 
And look, I don't mean to speak ill of Oracle. I, I liked a lot of people I worked with there, but culture wise, the culture was we're going to do micro benchmarks all the time mm. to demonstrate how much faster our hardware is or how much better our database is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a very, I mean, it, I understand it, but it's not the the best way to to do things. And I, whenever I see a benchmark, I'm inherently skeptical just having participated in many of these benchmarks and seen them. And just knowing that, you know, these are big, complicated systems and, you know, maybe your reads are faster than your writes. But, uh, you know, if you look at it holistically, it doesn't really matter because they're all really good across all databases that you benchmark, you know. I mean, there's so many examples of where you could just totally cherry pick something. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I totally agree. I completely agree. It's always just, you need to look at things as a whole instead of just picking these benchmarks. And we always had a saying when I was working in innovation, uh, people would just take business models. And the second you got funding, you would throw the business model out because you just yeah. know that it was just trash. And you're just like, why did we do it in the first place? Why are we doing these things? <laughs> right. To get us to that next step. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to, like if you were enterprising, you know, Rackspace has a cloud that they're in the process just shutting down. Mm. If you gave me some money and some people, I could come up with five headline benchmarks where Rackspace does better than AWS. I promise you I could, you know, but like it's marketing. That's yeah. all it is. It's not a real technical benchmark of, of any measure at all. And we at Commerce Tools, like, we're, you know, since we're a headless platform, our responsibility ends when the API is finished responding like last bite out. Mm-hmm. So we don't really, I mean, we have our internal SLAs and SLOs, but I mean, it's really up to the customer at right. that point to do what they want with us. So we don't even benchmark that much or do anything of that sort. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you for all of that. I want to give one more thing to you for the people that really do enjoy listening about commerce today. Kelly has his own podcast called commerce tomorrow. So maybe <laughs> that, that was a pretty good segue, yes. right? That was a good one. That, that was not good. bad, right? Uh, definitely. I check also it out. recommend reading the rest of this list of seventy-five points because there's definitely a lot of good shared lessons learned to be taken away, and I think it's always so nice if people like you, Kelly, take the time to document the lessons learned that they made along their career and share them with others. So, yeah, lots of reading recommendations and listening recommendations to dig a bit deeper into your work. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thanks very much for joining Rewrite Tech. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent. And yeah, Brad, I think we're nearing the end of this season. I think we are. Yeah, we it's been one of those. It's been one of those years. This we're r- running to the end. Uh, this is uh, Kelly was one of our last podcast guests of the year. Our twelfth, twelfth guest, thirteenth guest. I don't even remember this year. We have so many amazing guests over the past year, and uh, we're really honored that the reception to the podcast has been so great. So Geraldine and I are very excited to be continuing this podcast in twenty twenty one. Corona or no Corona, we will be continuing rewrite tech podcast. So again, please subscribe, like, follow us all over Instagram, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever things that pump out audio <laughs> were there. Again, thank you very much for tuning in uh, to Rewrite Tech. I'm Brad Richards and I'm Geraldine Devastian and also look forward to regathering next year for more Rewrite Tech episodes. Meanwhile, do also please send us your feedback and your comments, any ideas for people you'd like to have on the show and have a lovely rest of this strange year. <laughs> Thanks.